0: and I hope you'll be inspired to write. Because, as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode 102. 55 of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. It is November 3rd, my brother-in-law's birthday as I record this, and I hope that you can't hear all the noise going on in the background of my house. They're working once again on the street and I have no idea why. And I can't seem to find a good day to record this because they're just always there. (laughs) I just don't. Anyway, hopefully the sound is not getting to you. It's just getting to my head more than anything. Today on the podcast, I have Carrie Drobin with me. She is a true crime author, and she's the first true crime author that I've had on the podcast. I've had, you know, people who have written memoir, um, a little bit of nonfiction, but it's interesting because true crime obviously requires a lot of investigation and getting certain facts right, and she goes into, you know, people that she has to keep anonymous, and all the sort of difficulties of that. And she's also a lawyer. So we go into how that has helped or possibly hindered her writing, how she writes and continues to work full time. And, you know, she also has a course for specifically for um, true crime authors or people who want to try out true crime. So you're going to want to stick around for that episode. I think she's very interesting. It's a Completely different way of writing and researching than I am used to or need to do, and so um, yeah, we love listening to people's methods here on Pencils and Lipstick, knowing that not one method is the perfect method, right? And depending on what genre you're writing in, it might need tweaking, <laughs> right? So, so we are going to talk about that with Carrie Drobin, um, in the interview part of this podcast. And that is coming up soon. If you like the podcast, if you listen to the podcast, if you're um, liking the people who are on the podcast, I'm so glad. And I just ask that you would share it with other writer friends or reader friends who enjoy listening to author interviews or who are curious about the writing process. Um, The more you share, the more it helps the show, basically. And if you could give a review, on um, especially Spotify or um, iTunes podcast app. Now, honestly, if you listen to it anywhere and there's a review section, go ahead and review it there. You don't have to you know, go out of your way and get a whole new app for that. But I appreciate it. It helps sort of bring this podcast up into the ranking. And it's funny, ranking on podcasts go up and down all the time, and I completely understand. But if you're enjoying it, you know, think about sharing it out. It's sort of just that value for value model where I try to bring you guys value every week and you sharing it with somebody is definitely value, bringing value back to the show. And if you want to bring even more value to the podcast and make sure that I can continue paying my editor and for all the hosting fees and everything that goes into podcasting like transcriptions, if you don't know that we have transcriptions, we do on pencils and spelled out lipstick.com, you can find all of the shows with the transcriptions, um, But if you want to support the show monetarily because you're just that generous, whether it's one time or subscription based, you can go over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash pencils lipstick and you can become a supporter of the show. You get lots of you get access to lots of little goodies over there almost all the PDFs that I have created for writers are over there that you get access to as a um, supporter of the show. And I'm thinking about doing, you know, live Q and A's or where you can sort of contact me and get answers, um, whatever people are up for. Of course, I've just been really slow at building out that part. I tried Patreon for a while and it was they up the prices and they sort of move things around. And I know I, I tend to like jump from one thing to another. I've settled on Buy Me A Coffee, although I dislike the name of the site, <laughs> but it just seemed to, you know, better, like be better formatted for a podcast. I can put up the videos of the show there a little bit easier. Um, just maybe it's just my brain. Maybe it's just my poor understanding of tech. <laughs> But, you know, most people have a podcast page, uh, a Patreon page for their podcast. Um, that's a tongue twister. And so, sort of buy me a coffee is the same idea. So, there is, you know, I would love to up the sound on this, you know, get the soundboard, get different things going on the podcast. But of course, everything takes time and money. So, if you want to support the show, you're awesome. Um, and I completely appreciate it. And again, just like I said, you just sharing the show or or listening is already giving back value. So I appreciate you. So this week on the show, you know, we have Carrie talking about it, but it's all about true crime, but it's also the start of NaNoWriMo. So we are one week into NaNoWriMo and I don't know if you are joining Nanorimo or if you've decided not to. I have had very mixed feelings about NaNoWriMo throughout the year. I I heard about NaNoWriMo way back. It wasn't like the beginning jungle days of the internet, but it was, you know, tr- 12 years ago. So that was still kind of jungle days of the internet. <laughs> I was living over in Europe. You know, these are the days of like forums. We didn't have social media. We had forums, you know, and you would spend all day on these forums, like arguing your point with people. It's That hasn't changed at all, has it? Um, and NaNoWriMo popped up and I was a young mother at the time. Well, I was young, but my kids were young. Um, and I had lost my job because the crisis had hit. Oh, this is aging me a lot, right? <laughs> In Spain, the last financial crisis before this one. Um, and so I was at home and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this because I had been able to write a draft of a book that eventually became Coffee Stains, although it, it, it like completely changed you know, a decade later. Um, so I tried several times to do it during November. And what happened in my own life was that I either used that time when my kids weren't in school over the Thanksgiving holiday to go home and visit family because it was cheaper than Christmas, or I became the person who hosted Thanksgiving in Madrid and then Toulouse um, for all the expats. And so November was just insane. <laughs> like It was just an insane time. And every two years I was pregnant for like five years, you know, and it was, I never got through it. And I bemoaned the fact that it, they chose November. Like, why November? Why not October? Like, the kids are in school then or September. You know? um, so I complained about nano for a long time. And here's the deal if you have started nano with very little prepared, at this point, the second week, you might be feeling quite a bit of pressure. And this, I will freely admit, was a bit of my problem. I went into NaNo just assuming that my brain would come up with a book to write. And, you know, being very busy, uh, that did not happen. (laughs) You know, I think I I got through like maybe, oops, sorry, maybe three days or four days, you know, and maybe would try to catch up or whatever and just ended up giving up and then many many years I just um staunchly refused to to join but if you have joined and you had very little um prepped very little thought put into a story just sort of assuming like I did that a story would come or you had like a character or a scene and you just sort of assume that if you if you created space for yourself to write the story would come and perhaps you are struggling Because unlike that movie that I actually really don't like, (laughs) this story doesn't just come, even though his baseball players came, whatever. It's such a weird, weird story in my opinion. Anyway, sometimes the story just doesn't come. Sometimes those characters don't come. And if you are working full time, or you are taking care of kids full time, or maybe parents full time, or other things in life are happening... Yeah, the story doesn't just come even when you sit down in the chair. And writing 1,600 words, what is it, like 1,685 or something that you have to write every single day to get to 50,000, that can take a long time if you're not in the right headspace for it. Now, to be encouraging to you, if you have just sat down, if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed right now, <clears throat> I want to bring you a couple little hinters and pointers. First of all, don't don't be scared of the fact that it's not coming easily. I would still encourage you to sit down and possibly lower the expectation of the word count if that is really getting to your head. If it's not getting to your head, don't worry about it. But if you continue to sit down and use that space to think about your story. Even if you are not writing tons of words, let's say you get 500 words down, but you've spent time really thinking about that story, you are getting to know your characters more, you're getting to know the story more, you're starting to see the plot holes, the, um, the story arc holes, you are getting to understand what's missing, what's needed, and you might start getting excited about it, right? a little bit more. Don't give up on that time. If you have already carved out this month for NaNoWriMo, keep that time. Be very jealous of that time. Keep it and use it for at least thinking and sitting in the chair with the book open and writing a couple sentences, a couple hundred words. Okay. Try to get through this hump. (laughs) that might be coming. And if it's not there yet, it might come next week. Now I want you to remember too, that 2000 words a day is a lot. And I think it's not technically 2000, but perhaps you've missed a couple or you haven't met your goal. Like whatever the number of words a day probably feels like a lot. The other day I was, I think it was the first day of NaNo. I was sitting down and I was writing and I knew what the scene had to be, but my head was being pulled in 500 different directions because it was Tuesday and I had to do all this stuff. And I remember looking at the workout and going, 600 words, that's all I've written? I've been sitting here for like an hour and a half. And now when I'm really on a roll of writing, an hour and a half, I can get out 1,500 words, boom, and be done. It takes me an hour and a half to do that. I know that. But that showed me that I was struggling to get into the right headspace. So, even 600 words can feel like a lot. But then, it, on the other hand, it's not a lot. It's not too much. It's, in fact, doable. Whatever word count you have set for yourself as a goal, it is doable. Please know that it's doable and remember that. And it is doable because we aren't looking for perfect words. You are not handing this in to class at the end of the month. You are writing your first draft, your discovery draft. You are discovering things. It might not be the perfect word. You might need to write a sentence that and just highlight it as a holder. Hey, I need to figure out more about this place. Hey, this needs to be developed more. Hey, there might need to be another scene here, but I'm going to move on to the scene that I already have in my head. It's doable If you keep telling yourself, it is not the perfect draft. It is just the discovery draft. Now, if you have missed a day or two or three, please know it's okay. This is kind of like a diet. And again, no one's really watching you. You know, some people, maybe your writing buddies might rib you a little bit or hopefully they'll encourage you. But this is like a diet or, you know, learning to exercise however many times a week you want to do that. It is fall off the horse, get back on the horse. And I just want to tell you, come on, get back on the horse. You can do this. You are doing NaNoWriMo for you. You didn't pay for it. You signed up for it voluntarily. (laughs) Hopefully there's no like pressure, you know, like revolver behind your back. Telling you, you have to sign up for NanoRimo. You don't have to get to fifty thousand words, but it is the challenge. It is the moment of this year that you can be challenged along with a lot of people to get this story really started. You know, it's like it's like those cars from a hundred years ago where they had to crank them. It's like you're cranking and cranking and cranking, and pretty soon, you know, you will get that engine going and you'll be off. So if you've missed a day or two, just get back on. It's okay. Now, if you get stuck in the story, I would suggest that you go take a walk. Go take a walk with your phone or with a writer friend that you can talk things through. Now, a writer friend who's gonna listen and not talk about their, you might have to like set a timer. You get 10 minutes, they get 10 minutes to talk about theirs. But if you don't want to deal with another human on the other line, take your phone and just record yourself and pretend you are talking to another person. You talk through your story, you talk through your character, you talk, okay, um, what do I need this guy to do? What could their profession be? What are they feeling right now? What what has happened already in their life? You know what has brought them to this point. Let's talk this through. Talking things through can bring a lot of clarity. That's therapy, right? That's what we do in therapy. Talking it through. So do that. Take your phone, record yourself, and I say record yourself because you can then, um, you can put it onto Word. You can start the dictation process in Word and you can play back what you put in to your phone. And, you know, especially if you say something brilliant and then you can't remember it later. Now, it's not necessary to record yourself. A lot of times just talking through with your phone is enough for some people. And I like to do it with my phone because, you know, nobody thinks you're crazy. They just think you're talking to somebody. I also want to remind all of my NaNoWriMo's and any writer in particular to not forget to move your body. Don't sit down at the computer for five hours a day without taking care of your body. You do not want to come out of this with a stumped back or like so tight of hips you can't stand up straight anymore. <laughs> you don't want to cause physical issues that you didn't have before NaNoWriMo, right? So whatever your body can do, do it. Get some stretching, get some walking, get some exercise, get some weights. All of these are good for you. Um, Building good habits alongside your writing habit is just a good idea. We need water in our bodies, not just coffee as well. (laughs) I know it was just Halloween, but after you eat that other Kit Kat, please remember to eat some protein and drink some water. Especially for those of you like me that might get drops in blood pressure, um, definitely get some protein in your body. Otherwise, you'll start like shaking all over the place and you won't be able to get your typing done. Right? So, let's take care of our bodies as we get through this. I know Thanksgiving is coming up, I know Christmas is coming up, but it is a good idea to take care of your body. And one thing that I love doing that my physical therapist told me to do when I was having so many shoulder issues was to sit up in my chair and put my two, like two of my fingers, my index and my second finger, I guess, on my chin and just push it back. Like we spend so much time with our neck forward and our chest like rolled in as we look at our phone and as we type, but just sort of sit up as best you can and then push your chin back. And you'll you'll feel your spine just align itself, oh, and you just you start realizing how how far away your chin is from your spine, <laughs> and it, it brings a great stretch, and it sort of brings an awareness of how you're holding your body. Remember to sh- to stretch your shoulders if you can lay down on the floor on like a yoga brick or something that sort of lays right at the top of your spine in order to bring your shoulders out and onto the ground. That is a great shoulder stretch. And you know, YouTube has tons of these things, just stretching out your shoulders, um, holding up your your torso, pushing back your chin and aligning your spine and just those few things along with water and some protein and, and you will be able to keep going, right? That's what we want to do. We want to be able to keep going. So Once this month is over as well, let's say you get through it. Let's say you hit your goal or you don't hit your goal, but you have a story. You have something there. You have some sort of semblance of a story because even 50,000 words is not a full story, but you have something. Remember that there are people out there that can help you go through what you have and figure out how to make it a fun and full and vibrant story. And you could end up having a novel published next year. So at the end of this month, just try to get through this month. Maybe take a couple weeks off, maybe take December off and Then start looking for maybe a book coach, maybe in a developmental editor, maybe a writing group where you can sort of submit scenes and get feedback on. I will have some special NaNoWriMo help pricing come out um, on my website. If you sign up for my newsletter, you'll be the first ones to get it. And there will be little workshops that I'll have so that you can see if this is something you want to continue with, or maybe NaNoWriMo will teach you, no, that's actually not the story I wanna write, but now that I have the practice of writing every day, I'm gonna start writing this other story. Whatever it is, getting into that habit will sort of catapult you into the writing world where there are tons of groups and individuals who can help you continue to develop your writing, continue to develop your storytelling. I can help you with it, I, if you, I'm not the right fit for you, I can point you in the right direction of somebody who can help you. Um, I was recently awarded my full fiction book coaching certificate from Author Accelerator. There are some great people at Author Accelerator who have been trained really well to help people get through their books. But I know quite a few other people, editors, and developmental editors, and writing groups, You just find me at catcaldwell.com or go to Instagram. You can either go to minecatcaldwell.author or pencils and lipstick all spelled out on Instagram, or you can find me pencilslipstick on Twitter and just tweet me, write me, DM me, sign up to my newsletter, and I will find you the person that can help you. That is the perfect fit for you. And last but not least, guys, you need to have fun. You need to enjoy this time. You need to remember that you want to write a book because it's fun, because you wanted to get a story out into the world. So don't focus on the hardships of NaNoWriMo, but just remind yourself, this is just a challenge. It's just for fun. It's just for me. Let's just write. It's just it's, there's nothing else to it. It's not a competition, right? I mean, we'd all love to win. I think, especially as Americans, we're real competitive, but it's okay. Whatever you get done is more than you would have gotten done if you hadn't sat down <laughs> and started writing. So let's take the wins where we see them and have fun. And if you guys want to join a writing group because you need sort of that accountability and that place to come together and see other people writing, you can head over to catcaldwell.com, click on the tab that says writers, and you can join my creative co-writing sessions membership. We have over 20 hours a week in which we sprint together over Zoom. So you can be anywhere in the world. There are times, different times all throughout the week. For those who work full time, for those who don't work full time, you're going to find a spot there. And we're pretty awesome. I mean, like every single person in there is pretty awesome and pretty fun. And we are serious writers. So we say, hello, we might, you know, wave and make sure everyone has what they're doing. And then we sit down and write. It is not one of those groups where people start talking and then nothing else gets done. So you can find that, or you can go to NaNoWriMo.com and find a community there. Now, before we go into the interview section with Carrie Drobin, We will pause for a little bit for our sponsorship of the week. Most indie authors have heard of Mark Dawson and many have heard of the self-publishing formula or his self-publishing podcast. Well, on November 9th, 2022, they are relaunching Self-Publishing 101 to Self-Publishing Launchpad, and it will be open that day for new enrollees. This is a rebrand of Self-Publishing 101 with updated sessions and more bonus features. All of the existing 101 students will be placed in there right away, but guess what? It's open to new students now, and they are even collaborating with NaNoWriMo communities and encouraging those students to take part. Now, the Self-Publishing 101 is their flagship signature course for all things any author needs to know about writing, getting their book to publish and to market, and then marketing their book. They have lessons on how to write a bestseller, how to revise your book, how to choose a cover design, They have lessons on Mastering Scrivener or Formatting with vellum. Then they have the Advertising for Authors and their List Building for Authors. This is a course that if you are starting out or you're ready to really get serious, you probably want to check out. I know there's a lot of courses out there, but this is something that thousands of students have gone through. If you just want to go from the fundamentals to the more than fundamentals, to the advanced, this is the course for you. There's lots of little pieces for indie authors and you can spend a lot of time on Google figuring them all out or you can check out Self Publishing Launchpad. The link will be in the show notes for you to go there. You can go to selfpublishingformula.com slash forward slash 101 or you can click the link down in the show notes, which will be my affiliate link. And if you decide that it is the course for you, just know that at no extra cost to you, it will be benefiting Pencils & Lipstick Podcast as well. So, If you have any questions about this course, I am in their As for Authors course. I would love to tell you about my take on their courses and how much I have learned from them and how much I have enjoyed the way that they're set up. You can contact me, of course, on any of the social media platforms that I'm on or on my website, catcaldwell.com. But definitely click the link below and at least check it out. See if it's right for you. Carrie Drobin is an award-winning author and attorney in Phoenix, Arizona. A graduate of the John Hopkins University Writing Seminars and the University of Arizona, she studied playwriting with Edward Albee and poetry with Peter Sachs, Carolyn Kaiser, and Joe Harjo. Drobin's true crime books, Running with the Devil, The True Story of the ATF's Infiltration of the Hell's Angels, and prodigal father, pagan son, growing up inside the dangerous world of the pagans motorcycle game, have received critical acclaim. Her latest book, Aurora, is about the Aurora shooting in Colorado, and it tells the story of Dr. Lynn Fenton, the psychiatrist of the man who ended up killing. Now, you might wonder how a poet became a true crime writer. Well, you are about to find out in this interview with Carrie Drobin. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today I have with me a true crime author. I think this is my first one on the show, Carrie Drobin. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm
1: really great. Thanks for having me on, Kat.
0: Well, thanks for coming on, because this is a whole different kind of writing than somebody that I've talked to before, but um, before we get into your latest book, Aurora, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and yeah, then we'll go from there.
1: Okay. Well, um, I my my name is Carrie Drobin and I am a criminal defense attorney and a true crime author. And I it's hard to answer the question where I'm from because I actually grew up overseas. And, oh, okay. Um, but I went to college in New York and Baltimore and then eventually came out to Arizona. So I was just a I loved school. I just <laughs> kept staying in school until I realized that I couldn't make it a career. So, nice. <laughs>
0: well, my my daughter has to say she wants to be a lawyer, and I was like, "You better really like
1: school." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I was a nerd. I really loved school. Well,
0: so, did did law come first? Like, did you want to study law um, when you were younger?
1: No, I actually have always been a writer Okay, from the time I was seven years old. I asked my parents for a typewriter because I really, I'm, I'm one of those very um, tactile writers. Mm-hmm. I really want to be able to feel the keys under my fingers. And at the time, of course, computers weren't around. And so um, I taught myself how to type wow. and I would write stories and illustrate them. Okay, And I still have them all. But then I went on to study poetry. Poetry really became my thing. And I spent um, several years writing poetry and studying it and getting MFAs in it. Um, and I really wanted to teach it okay. for a long time. I wanted to be a creative writing professor. But I could not eat <laughs> as, I, as a poet. And so sadly, um, I abandoned that. And then I wrote a couple of novels. And it was really around, um, you know, I was really literally the starving artist um, when I was writing and that's, you know, the recession hit. And then I really kind of was up against a wall, like how am I going to support myself? And so I went to law school um, really as a vehicle to kind of give me, this sounds crazy, to give me the time to write. Oh, (laughs) it's really (laughs) really (laughs) crazy,
0: right? That's (laughs) That's so crazy.
1: yeah. Because, I mean, being um, a starving artist was so stressful. And and after a while, it was so distracting because it was all I ever thought about was, how was I going to eat? Where's my next meal coming from? How am I going to support myself? And it became so distracting. I really couldn't write very well. And so Law seemed like a very solid career path it was one of the few degrees that I got where I knew there would be light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. I would actually have a, you know, a job <laughs> that I could you know eat and, and yeah. And actually ever since it's been a vehicle to fund my writing career, which that's cool. Yeah, is very backwards, but that's kind of how it happened.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it it is kind of like, I think that gives hope to a lot of people. Like there are a lot of full-time writer workers who write as well, you know, but I like what you said. It also kind of fuels the writing, like not only monetarily, but I'm sure idea wise, like you're out there, you're a criminal defense attorney, like you must see and hear and learn about some crazy
1: things in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I did not even have an idea what kind of law I was going to get into. Okay. I, mean, I really just did it very unsystematically. And I, I mean, law school to me was, I knew I was good at school. I okay. was a good student and I loved learning. And so, and I loved debate. I was on the debate team in college and I did a lot of acting. And so for me, it was a great vehicle to kind of marry them all. And, huh. <laughs> but when I was in law school, I realized that being a, I, I really liked trial work because okay. trial work is very similar to telling a story. You know, That's- you, you have the opportunity to be in front of juries and tell a story and craft it. But, you know, of course, with the facts. And so, you know, it was very challenging for me to have bad facts and be able to make an argument or make a story. And so um, so that was really what got me into the trial portion of it. Okay, so I wasn't even thinking of true crime. It wasn't even on my radar when I first you know, I went to law school and started, I started as a prosecutor. So
2: okay. <laughs> some you...
1: people say I was on the good side, you know, before the side. well, <laughs>
0: but then things happen, like, you know, what happened in Washington state when they, right.
1: Say, right,
0: we, you know, put this guy in jail for no reason. So you never know. Um, right. So yeah. when you were, when you said that you were writing poetry before, and then you had written novels, or you had started writing novels, they weren't true crime? In the beginning are not
1: actually crimes. So this okay. is another crazy way. So for anyone listening, you know, there does not have to be a direct route. Yes. <laughs> anything. Um, yeah, I mean, poetry was always my passion, my first love. Um, but then, when I became a lawyer, my first couple of years as a prosecutor, it, I really missed writing, and mm. I was so steeped in in how to be a lawyer. You know, law school was very time consuming. My first job as a prosecutor is very time consuming, was always being thrown into trial. And I was invited to um a writer's group by a neighbor of mine, who just happened to mention that I like to write, had never written a novel before either. And so I went to this writer's group and I thought, wow, I think I can do that. You okay. know? And so I started to write my first novel, and it was called In the Company of Darkness. And it was a novel about a prosecutor okay. who was, you know, investigating a case. And at the time, I I was living in a home that had been infested with black widows. And so oh. I started to write a story about a prosecutor investigating somebody who was trying to find a cure for um, black widows, black widow bites. It was a crazy story, but, but it wound up being a suspense thriller. And right. so... Um, and so I thought, well, that's what I want to write, you know, that's okay. really kind of exciting. And it's kind of weaving in my experience, you know, everybody says, write what, you know, and so
2: yeah, <laughs> so that's where I
1: started and, you know, and it took me a year and that's I, not bad. yeah, I approached writing very much like a job from the very okay. beginning and, um, and that has served me very well because. I have never been one to put an excuse on something, you know, it was okay. always a passion. It was always what I wanted to do. And so I made it a habit. Mm. And so I, I said to myself, there are 365 days in a year, an average book is about 350 pages. So I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to write something. And I had a finite amount of time to write because I'm right. be a lawyer, you know? So, yes. Um, So I made it a habit. I I started to train myself to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And pretty soon that became four o'clock in the morning. Oh my
2: goodness. And
1: and I found my rhythm, you know, and that's really important to find your rhythm, like what's going to work for you. And for me, I would write, I would write every day from 4 a.m. to about seven. And then I'd go be a lawyer. Yeah. And so at the end of the year, I had a book.
0: (laughs) So when you were writing that for those three hours, did that include like investigating or like just sort of writing and throwaway? You know, because how did how did that? Well, I guess eventually, once you're really like awake and you set up, what did those three hours encompass
1: for for a full time worker? Well, you know, when I first started doing it, I really felt like an imposter. I was like, Mm. what the hell am I doing? like I would sit there and. Sometimes at the end of three hours, I would write two sentences and I would get very discouraged, but I didn't stop. And that Mm. was the big thing for me was do not give up. Do not stop. I can do this. And I've really never written a novel before, but I was a reader. And so I really was trying to find my style and find my voice. And so it was very, very challenging. And I, um, so, you know, writing fiction a lot of it involved research. So you're right. Like as I started to write, I realized that I didn't know what I was writing until I started researching. And some of it of course was drawing on personal experience. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to go trial watch or, you know, find the case. Yeah, so I, true. I knew stuff like that, but the book, the the book kind of took on a life of its own and I wound up having to research a lot more than I had planned. And you know, thank God for the internet Yeah. That's what my research was. I would still sit there. And so when I wasn't getting ideas, I would research. But no okay. matter what it was, I I committed myself to those three hours. So I was either going to research for three hours or I was going to write two sentences and research, whatever it was. Okay. And so pretty soon, the more that I had, the more information I had about the subject I was trying to write about, the easier it came to write. But I'm not an outliner. I'm yeah. very... I don't even know what I'm going to say until I start writing kind of thing. But I like
0: how you say you didn't really give up on those hours because I think the temptation is to be like, well, that I don't have it in me today. I'm going to go down and make myself some breakfast and take the dog out. And maybe, maybe I'll go exercise or maybe I'll check my, now we have our phone. So it's just terrible, you know, yeah. all the distractions, but you really kept it like whether or not you were writing, those were your writing hours, like telling your brain, yeah. no, <laughs> really. That's so, that's, that self disciplines amazing. I have to say, yeah, but it's probably it
1: good. Yeah, it was necessary because it was never going to happen otherwise, you know. Right. So I, I just, yeah, I mean, I would hear, you know, I would hear a lot of people making excuses and saying, I don't have time, you know, I'll write when I retire, I'll write when I'm on vacation. I'll write. And I'm like, I, I, I don't want I, I to wait. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to give it up, you know, because that's yeah. really what. I I had started doing from a young age and I I loved it. And so, yes, I mean, it definitely evolved over time. You know, my whole process is a little bit different now, but I mean, I still commit to those, those three hours.
0: But I I do think you already had sort of that background of poetry writing and studying that. So you knew it's like when people say, I'm going to write on vacation, you know, as a writer, whether you're a poet or not, that's not going to happen. You know, because like you said, sometimes you sit down and you realize, oh, I actually need to know, like, how does a Black Widow bite? Like, does it bite or does it sting? I don't know. Like, I have to go research (coughs) that now, you know, like how does. So, you know, that writing isn't just sitting down and putting words on a page. So, yeah, I like how you said it. Like, those are the those are the hours. I think our biggest problem these days as writers is that distraction. But for anyone starting to write, that might be the thing that they need to do, right? Take an hour and like, you don't do anything other than sit there. <laughs> and yeah. The
1: and sometimes it actually, you know, it helped me to write it down in a calendar. I mean, okay. at the time we have these paper calendars, right. But I would literally schedule it like it was a meeting. Oh, yeah. And I'm, of course, it's four in the morning. So you don't have a lot of distractions at four in the morning. But you know, other than you want like, to go back to sleep. But, um, you know, depending on when a person's rhythm is, if you... It's that physical act of writing it down hmm. and committing it to paper right. that makes you keep it, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure this is, I mean, this has happened to me, so it maybe it's happened to you where you you schedule a a lunch date with a girlfriend and, you know, invariably something else is going to bump it <laughs> So because right. the date, the lunch date, it's not that your friend is, you know, not as important as other things, but they don't seem to be as urgent.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: for me, I made it an urgency. So like nothing blocked that, you know, came later. Everything came later.
0: That's the thing too. Like as you study habits and how to change the bad ones that you have, you realize I've, you know, read or listened to podcasts and all that. They always say, if you put it to the later, later on in the day, and every, something comes up and it never gets done, right? It's like the gym; like you should do it in the morning because you know you will. Yes. So <laughs> and I can imagine as a <laughs> lawyer, the last thing you want to do is sit down at nine o'clock at night and write. Like I, I would assume that you're spent at that point.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I and I learned that pretty quickly. I mean, my my brain is full. You know, by the end of the day, I I am pretty incoherent. And <laughs> I mean, it's you know so i, I gave it I mean, I really knew that I had about eight hours in me, and you know law is pretty demanding, and so by the end of like five o'clock would roll around and i I just wasn't one of those people that could you know work late into the night even even if it was a preparing for a case, it just didn't happen. I just yeah. knew you know my best work was going to be done at <laughs> before time. that, yes, yeah,
0: so your first one was a suspense um kind of based I guess on what you had. We're experiencing as a new prosecutor, right? And then, when did you go into true crime? And and what is the difference, really, for any listener who's oh, might wow. not know?
1: huge difference. Well, so after my first novel, I I wrote a second novel, and then I was really um, trying. I was trying to write. I had written a third novel, and I wanted to move up into that level of like, okay, now I need an agent. Mm-hmm. So so the first two novels you know, I published with a small press and then I, I didn't have an agent in this third novel. It was shopping for an agent. So I'd go to writing conferences and I would pitch my third novel and, and it was a a pretty, um, so this is probably the precursor to true crime is a pretty disturbing Mm. idea. Okay. (laughs) Um, yeah. And who knows where this came from, but, uh, I was getting the door shut on me a lot. I was okay. sending things out. And after a while, this was the other tip I'll or give to your viewers I kept all of my rejection letters. Okay. I had a binder full of rejection letters, like over 300. And the reason I started doing that was not to depress myself, but because I couldn't remember after a while who I had sent my query letter to you or my proposal to you or whatever. And, and so all I was hearing was, I was my head was being. Filled with information on the right way to do it. Like this is what you do. This is the convention. This is, you know, so you write your query letter, you send it out, you wait the obligatory six weeks. Maybe they'll ask for, you know, a sample chapter or whatever. And so it's wasting a lot of time. And so it took me like two years of going to writers' conferences, getting rejected, and I was ready to throw in the towel. I was, I was so discouraged. And so strangely, as I was doing this, I was still a prosecutor, but I was pregnant with my first child, and I did probably the unthinkable because I did not want to be a prosecutor anymore <laughs> because I didn't want to be confined. I didn't want to be restricted to a nine to five job, right? Because right. writing was taking more time. <laughs> I wanted to have flexibility. I know it's like really backwards, but I knew that in order to go to writer conferences, in order to do what I really wanted to do, I needed flexibility. Right. So at nine months pregnant, oh I my quit goodness. my prosecutor job. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> my husband at the time was losing his mind. Okay. And so <laughs> I went out on my own and I started to do defense work. Okay. And my very first criminal defense case out of the gate. Okay. It was a capital case. Oh my God. That's a penalty case. And oh, I happened to be, you know, total serendipity. I happened to be at the right place at the right time. And I had an attorney who said to me, I'm working on a case and I really could use some help. Would you, cause it was a, the writing portion. So he wanted me to write the brief for this case or to help him write the brief for this case. And so that's what launched me into death penalty work okay. and like representing the worst of the worst and getting into this criminal pathology and really starting to like love it and <laughs> thinking, Oh my God, this is, this was the perfect job for me because I got to study the cases. It involved investigation. It involved meeting with these death row inmates doing in interviews. I mean, it was everything that I needed to be able to write true crime. Now right. I still didn't have true crime on my radar at all. So the way that true crime came about was completely by accident, complete fluke. So I should mention that at the time I was married to a, an undercover detective. Okay. And he was working a task force. Okay, so there wasn't a lot of information that we shared, which is why we are no longer married. That's <laughs> but, tough. That is really you know, tough. You know. People think, "Oh, you're in the perfect field. You had an undercover detective. You have all this information." No, not like that at all. Because we did not. Share, we didn't speak about our work, you know, at home or anything. That was our rule: do right. not bring the work home. So I knew that he was involved in a task force, and and the PS to that is actually quite funny later on but the um the operatives who were involved in that task force they wanted to write their story okay and they couldn't write it while they were still involved in the investigation because it's a crime to do that oh so they approached me and asked me if I would be willing to write their story okay under certain circumstances now the story involved the first ever infiltration of the house angels yes <laughs> And oh my I, gosh. I know. And so my first reaction was no. <laughs> <laughs> I have a child. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm like no. Like hell no. I'm not doing this, you know. And so um and they said, "But, you know, you're you're the perfect person to write it. You, you know, you can hold our secret. You're an attorney, so, you know, like I'm like no, not doing it." And so by the third time, You know, and it's because I was having all this trouble publishing my third novel. By the third time, I said, yes. I mean, I could hear the word coming out of my mouth and and my brain saying, what's the matter with you, you know? So I I took a tremendous risk and I said, yes. Now here here was the the caveat to this. So I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a mentor. I had never written true crime before. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have like the publisher that I had for my novels certainly wasn't going to publish this, but it was an extraordinary story. Right. It was the first of its kind. And, um, and by the way, if I did get lucky enough to get an agent, there's nothing in writing. I could have nothing in writing. Okay. So that was my tall order with this book. (laughs) So, and there was nothing written on it. So everything that I had to like get the story was interviews.
0: Was just them. Oh my god. With
1: operatives who were undercover, who could not be identified. I had to hold their secrets and, and, and hell's angels. Okay. So, and this operation was still going on. So wow. conceivably I could have been disbarred and my writing career over, like before it even began, that's what the stakes were when I took this. This project on. Oh my god! So yeah. So the way that I did it, it you know, and keep in mind that I had, I had it kind of uh, railroaded into my head. This is how you do this: you send a query letter off, you wait, you blah blah blah. I couldn't do that with this project because yeah. nothing could be in writing. Okay. So, so that began this journey of trying to find um, somebody who had written something similar. And I wanted to find that person's agent. Okay. And so
0: That's a good idea. Uh,
1: yeah. So I read things like Donnie Brasco, um, you know, uh, what was it the uh, Levine's book, um, The White Lie? I mean, all of these things that had to do with undercover investigations. And so, and that's what I did. So I found that person's agent. And instead of writing the letter, I called him up so yeah which is like a (laughs) no-no yeah I mean I just did I'm I'm flipping everything on its head so I mean this this is also for your listeners like you sometimes you can go out you can color outside the lines you know because there is not one way to do everything and I had nobody to ask I mean there was no one I knew that was a true crime writer so I um I called up this agent at lunch because that's what lawyers do. We always get people at their desk at lunchtime, you know, and I remember making that phone call and I could hear the agent was eating lunch. I think he was eating a sandwich. I could hear him chewing, you know, on the other end. And I said, my name is, you know, Carrie Drobin and I know you're probably going to find this crazy, but here's what's going on. I have a story. And so I pitched the story and I thought, you know, sometimes for me, it's better to not have practiced something because yeah. I wanted it to be natural. And part of me was actually hoping he would, he say, would say no. no. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I tried, I would, guys. <laughs> I would go back to the operatives and say, "Sorry, I'm the wrong person. You know, go do this yourself." So, but the funny reaction was is that the agent actually laughed, and he oh. said. I think I can sell your story. Oh, and so, yeah. <laughs> so it was it was nuts, and so I had nothing in writing. I don't even know how the agent sold the story, honestly. But wow, or anything was written. Wow. Yeah. And so, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean that that book eventually became Running with the Devil. Right, Running with
0: the Devil: The True Story of the ATF's Infiltration of the Arizona Hell's Angels. So when you you can't use their names. You can't, it, I mean, a true crime, how, how true, how, how much do you have to stick to the story and to only the words that you know, people have said or things like that? Like, what are the rules or are there any rules about true crime?
1: Well, so there are, for me, I mean, because I have the novel background mm-hmm. and the writing background, I I'm always looking for the story. And so I approached it the way I would approach a a trial case. Like, how am I going to tell a story here? But the story has to be true. And the reason it has to be true is I don't want to be sued. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a big one. (laughs) Right? And so for me, accuracy was extremely important. Okay. And so... Because a lot of it was interviews. Most of it was interviews. And you have to keep in mind, some of them were confidential informants. So uh, I couldn't even use that. So I had I had the skeleton, the structure of the investigation itself, like the case itself. Okay. but I, I didn't have a trial because nothing had gone to trial yet. So I didn't have any testimony, right? Um, and and there wasn't like books out there. I couldn't go out and like cooperate, you know, the Hell's Angels or whatever. So, yeah. so all I had was um, interviews with these sources. And I also did, I had some confidential memoranda that one of the case agents had obtained from me. And so, because I was terrified about, you know, blowing this big investigation, I actually got involved and I put this information in a vault and I thought i can be subpoenaed. If it goes to trial, I'm going to be subpoenaed. This information is really important, you know? So I, my whole thing, in fact, throughout my whole true crime career has been accuracy is key. The number one thing It's like being a journalist because I don't want to be saying something, writing something that is not true and that I cannot back up with a source. But at the same time, like a journalist, I can't reveal my sources either. Right. So a lot of that, you know, I was learning as I was going and during the writing of this book, the thing that I learned very quickly on, it was very instinctual, I think, was get the information fast. Okay. Because my sources went south. Oh. (laughs) They got got cold feet. Yeah. And so midway through the project, they disappeared. And I had maybe, you know, I had all the information that I needed to write the book. And I had to make a decision whether I was going to write the book or not. And so I, I went ahead and wrote it, not knowing what was going to happen because the investigation had ended. So I had the ending of the investigation, but the prosecution was about to start. So here's the PS to this, right? Unbeknownst to me, my ex-husband was working on a piece of that undercover investigation. And so oh, man. the night, so as I'm struggling with, do I, don't I, the publisher has decided that they have this brilliant idea that they were going to put the Hells Angels logo, which is the death head on the book cover. Oh. And it's a trademarked copyrighted death head. And it's on their, you know, their cuts. It's on everything that they have. and you can't just take this and yeah. use it in the book world. So I was horrified when I saw the cover, absolutely horrified. And they hadn't thought that it would. No, <laughs> They hadn't thought about it. I mean, there's so many stories with this. And by the way, I, I do have a writing workshop on my website. If yes. you know,
0: <laughs> for yeah. For anyone if also, anyone's we- like, oh, I will never be able to I do know. like this.
1: I go into a lot of detail on all of my books. On all, every one of my books, has been an interesting backstory because it is really, really challenging to navigate. So, this world, I, it you know, seems I like it, yeah. All like not only the subculture of the House Angels, but the operatives who were, you know, didn't want to be outed, and I couldn't right. help them, and you know, so, so the PS to all of this, while I'm really concerned about keeping everybody's identities hidden, my ex-husband comes home the night before it's supposed to be prosecuted. And he says, we've been outed oh, no. in a grand jury indictment. <laughs> so our last name is outed. And he goes, we have to move. Oh no. So, you know, so the terror of all of this, I mean, it was really scary at times. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I had a family now. I mean, I was just like freaking out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. We did. We wound up moving and, um, and I, I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to go forward with this book with all of the repercussions in it. And I thought I've just spent, you know, a couple of years of my life invested in this and I cannot not do this because Mm -hmm. this, this, I, I'm a writer, you know, I'm a writer first attorney second. So I was throwing it all on the table Mm -hmm. and the indictments of the House Angels, all 16 of them got dismissed. So there was no trial. Oh no. The US Attorney's Office dismissed the cases. So my book could then it, it was like almost divine intervention. Like the book had like license now to go out into the world wow. and these operatives could have their stories told. And and I think that's what really started this whole path of like, you know, being a voice. Yeah. For people, for people that can't speak or won't speak but their stories are so compelling. Right. And you know, they need to be told. It's yeah, so- cuz they
0: they didn't even get a trial for their story. They didn't have anything. If without the book it would have just disappeared their whole all their years of work. Right. Wow. That's going to yeah. feel pretty good to have then accepted that job and to be able to
1: to tell that story that would have been lost. It actually, it was, I felt very privileged to be able to write that story. Um, You know, the main operative in the case has gone on, went on to write his own story and has gone on to be able to tell it in the way that he wanted to tell it, which I think also was really great because like a, you know, now he's got two versions of of the same story. And so they really cooperated and kind of dovetailed in with each other and they were told mm. in different ways. So that's another interesting thing from a writer's perspective, like right. how the same story. It's kind of like, you know, so many writers have written about Kennedy, but each time they write about it, it's, it's got a new and, and different perspective to mm-hmm. it. You yeah. know, so I, I think a lot of people are, are worried about that sometimes, but like, you know, can I write a story that is so heavily in the news or heavily profiled? Yes, you can. Cause yeah your voice is different, you know, and you're, yeah,
0: absolutely. So then this, so as you're doing criminal defense and you are seeing like, you're delving into death penalty work and seeing sort of people in situations that I don't think a lot of people in the world would be able to handle like very heavy things. And Mm -hmm. you're writing very heavy things. Like how, how did you come to, I guess continue on. Like, was it just love for writing and getting people's stories out? Um, because it just seems like a lot of heavy work that you're, you're trying to it's get. A out lot of heavy
1: work. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, after running with the devil, I thought I was done. Okay. I mean, it was it was so overwhelming. It was so um, I was exhausted, and I was um, I think in a in a really crazy way, like almost traumatized by the. Mm by the whole experience I would be. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, um, you know, and, and plus it, it had a serious, it took a serious toll right. on my marriage and, um, you know, and I, and I really took some time to like, sort of figure out like what's my next path here, you know? Um, and I was in law so I couldn't really switch gears. I'd already switched gears. <laughs> so now I'm like a defense lawyer and I'm doing this. I'm in it, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, and I really still found that work fascinating and it was, you know, paying the bills. And so my, um, my ex said to me, don't be surprised if somebody from a rival gang approaches you and asks you to write their story. And that oh. is exactly <laughs> what happened. Yes. So really? running, yeah. Running with the devil, the house angels launched my career because That's the next book that came my way was. The story of the pagans, and they're another one of the big five outlaw motorcycle gangs. So here I, I'm now I'm in this niche, right? I don't even ride a motorcycle. <laughs> I know nothing about motorcycles at this point. And so I've now become like I've been positioned as this person who has a bird's eye view into this subculture. That's which ins- that's so is crazy. So yeah, so I wound up writing prodigal father pagan son about a um he's not a kid anymore but at the time he was a, a kid who had grown up in an organized crime family. His father was the head of the pagans and he was recruited by his father's nemesis to murder his father. Oh my god. Yeah. Like and these that are real things. This is not, this real is, real real. Oh my god. So I, it was an inc- it was a crazy um honestly, you know with the exception of Aurora, I think that book really hit home for me in a lot of ways. It sounds huh. crazy. I was in his head, okay, writing from his point of view, okay. And I had to really, really get to know him. And, um, and he's
0: the one that wanted the book written.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. He called me up. He was sitting in his car, and he said, "I have read Running with the Devil, and I want you to write my story." And he lived in Philadelphia. So here, you know, I already had these hours, four to seven. (laughs) So so my writing, um, what I did with writing changed because I used that time to to talk to him. And we just talked. We talked for two years before Mm -hmm. I flew him out to Arizona when I can meet him because I needed to meet him face to face. I had to have that um, sort of that visceral, like, let me meet you so I can write your story and you know and and that was that was an extraordinary experience it was uh, a very moving experience I think for the both of us we still keep in touch um very powerful book and and that one launched the next one you know so they each person out there found like they found me yeah so I wound up writing about the big five biker gangs, and then I had positioned myself as sort
2: of a biker expert. Yeah, I would assume so after after
0: talking, like, it's so interesting to me. I mean, everyone has a story and some to think that there wasn't somebody out there almost like they felt like there wasn't somebody willing to write their story. Like, I would assume, you know, a lot of us sort of that that's like the edge of society. Most of us don't really want or understand or know what to do with that. And so that's so cool that even your husband with your ex-husband would think that they would call you, but it makes sense. It's like, here's somebody who's not going to judge me or belittle me or push me to the side or think that my story doesn't matter. Like, because it does matter. And it's an incredible, it's, that's just an incredible thing to have happened. You know?
1: It really was. And you know, and I, and I'm very, I'm very grateful for it every day. Like I never forget that, that I am a conduit. I'm a conduit for somebody else's story because for whatever reason, they're either living in, you know, undercover or they're under the thumb of a biker gang or they, you know, there's something about what they're trying to say that they need to be heard. Yeah, And I, I just, I mean, sometimes it just, it, it amazes me that, I'm able to do this for them, you know? Um, and 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 it's really changed a lot of their lives. I mean, it really, truly has. Like it, this uh, prodigal father, pagan son, you know, he wound up going to Australia to tour in Australia. Nice. I mean, he picked up foreign rights and the publisher flew him out there. He'd never been on an airplane before. He'd never been, you know, on a radio station. Suddenly he was, uh, you know, important and somebody that people would hear his story. So I think yeah. it's really, really it's such a, a powerful thing to be able to do that. That's why I, I think writers have like just an incredible skill to be able to transform, you know, an experience or story, whether it's fiction or true. Right. You know, in right. a way it's very compelling.
0: Yeah. that That's amazing. Um, and it's definitely, I mean, there are lots of people out there with stories. So anybody who's especially into true, but knows how to write the narrative, like you said, like our storytelling, um, I yeah. think always helps. But then, so you wrote these different motorcycle gang true crime true stories. How did Aurora come about?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, so I call it. I, I, I write the one percent of true crime. Right, I'm one percent <laughs> of biker gangs. I write the one percent of true crime that most people don't even touch because it's it's too crazy. Like there's nothing. Yeah. And so, but I had written one like regular crime about a, a bombing in Tucson. And so I, I had had that ability to write in that style as well, you know, there's trial and there's like, you know, sociopaths I can deal with. And Aurora was complete luck again, (laughs) because I was looking for an agent and I was actually trying to pitch a completely different book at the time. Okay. And You know, and every time you finish a book, you always wonder, is this going to be my last book? You know, is anybody really going to ever ask me to write another story? Right. And the agent happened to have Aurora come across her desk and they needed a writer. So wait, somebody pitched a story without a writer? Yes, they (laughs) pitched it. So the crazy thing is the... So there had been a gag order on the psychiatrist. So for people that don't know what it was, it's about the mass shooter, James Holmes, who went into a Colorado movie theater during the premiere of The Dark Knight Rises and slaughtered 12 Mm
2: -hmm. and critically
1: wounded 72 others. But the story was also about his treating psychiatrist who saw him in the six sessions before he amassed this arsenal and committed this outrageous crime. So- she had been under a gag order for three years. The judge oh, wow. it was a public trial and the judge said, you cannot talk about this. Everything was sealed. And he lifted that gag order. Wow. <laughs> and so when he lifted it, all the documents were accessible, became public record. They'd never before been released. And the psychiatrist could tell her story. Nice. So it was a very similar kind of thing. She had been silenced and, Really, really wanted to to say like, this is what happened. This is why I couldn't stop him, you know, yeah, and the whole time that she was gagged, people were attributing things to her. Mm. They were demonizing her. They were um, you know, threatened to kill her because oh she gosh. had not stopped this mass shooter. And so, you know, there it, it was a fascinating case, not only because I had the two perspectives, so I had everything about James Holmes that she didn't know that she oh. couldn't have known right but that was happening simultaneous to her treating him right so aurora is this incredibly interesting informative like bird's eye view into the life cycle of a mass shooter right and it's it's never before been accessible i mean now we have so we have we've had 37 mass shootings this year which yes. is Really extraordinary, but yeah. Um, but at the time in 2012, James Holmes was the first mass shooter to have intentionally survived his killing. He wanted oh. to survive it, so he was a neuroscience's doctoral student. He oh was brilliant, gosh. and he was in the university neuroscience's program, being um, mentored with professors in some of the most like brilliant minds of the country. (laughs) And the psychiatrist was also like in the top 1% of her profession to study this. So here you've got this like perfect storm. Okay. And nobody saw it. Yeah. And, And, and she, the psychiatrist, his name is Dr. Fenton. Um, she actually taught a class in mass shooting. So like she was the perfect person that was poised to be able to spot this, right, if she could have spot it. And so the whole message behind this is if you want to know how to spot a killer, read Aurora and find out that you can't.
2: You can't.
1: <laughs> That's kind of heartbreaking. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, but it's also... I mean, so not only do you have James Holmes as the only person to intentionally survive a shooting at the time, but you also have Dr. Lynn Fenton, his treating psychiatrist. You've never had that before. She's the only psychiatrist in the history of psychiatrists to have ever been outed publicly. Oh, wow. So she had such a uh, burden on her shoulders. Yeah. I mean, so she became, she decided to be the voice for this you know and so she put herself at great personal risk to come out of hating her whole life had been destroyed by james as many lives were and that's part of the book too which is the ripple effect of trauma Mm. you know and you know just as a ps to that it traumatized me too as the writer you know yeah I i mean that book beyond any other book really took a long time for me to recover from it. I, I mean, I don't think I ever really will recover from it, but there were scenes in that book where I would just be sobbing as I was writing it because it's like the first time that you not only get insight into what this mass shooter had planned, but just the the methodology he went mm. for, you know, how he amassed this arsenal, the intention behind it. But you also get what happened with the defense lawyers who represented him. So this was very interesting. It was sort of life imitating art, you know, because I had represented so many evil people.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
1: you know, my job was really to save them. Just like Dr. Fenton's job, right? To do no harm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're a psychiatrist. You're, You're wanting to help people. As a defense lawyer, you're wanting to help people. You're wanting to see their redemption in people that other people see as monsters. So it was a very interesting sort of like, wow, you know, here's this woman who I can really relate to. Right. And here are these defense lawyers that I can really relate to. Right. uh, You know, and so and like what happened to them and the, you know, many of them, this was a career ending case for them. Really, you know, Yeah, they couldn't, I mean, couldn't go on. And the other really fascinating thing for me as a defense lawyer is, you know, we're not, we're not allowed to interview jurors, you know, okay. in penalty cases. There are certain rules that are in place for that because, you know, and I think for, for good reason, I mean, jurors don't want to be, you don't want to have a chilling effect on your jury. Mm. You know, you don't want to be able to broadcast, Hey, this is what happens to to them so that the next capital case that comes around you have now tainted pool of jurors right as a writer i could talk to jurors oh, you know if they wanted to talk to me and that was very interesting because i had a, an insight into how these cases impact jurors and it gave me a whole new sensitivity toward it like they you know james holmes didn't get the death penalty is, that, of- is it not in Colorado? No, they had it in Colorado okay. at the time, but one juror held out. Okay. So he got life. He got the longest sentence in U.S. history. He got over 3,000 years.
0: Was before. he trying
1: to get the death penalty? Like, do you, Why did he want he, to stay alive? He wanted to stay alive because he wanted people to study his brain. No way. He, um, he actually produced a notebook that he mailed to the psychiatrist on the night of the shooting and the notebook. I mean, Dr. Fenton never saw this notebook until until recently, but the notebook really outlined his methodical plan to murder. It was fascinating. And And in the notebook, he has like several pages that just have one word. Why? And the word why gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the pages turn. Huh. And I think he was very, um, himself, very troubled and conflicted as to, you know, because he had fantasies of killing people from the time he was a child. Oh, but no. He didn't tell anyone. Yeah. Right. You know, so it it's really, it's it, I mean, it's a really disturbing book on a lot of levels, but it's also really insightful because, you know, people always want to, you know, I think it's human nature to want to point a finger at somebody and blame right. somebody and say it's, it, this. If you had done X, Y, Z, this wouldn't have happened. And because it's such a senseless, horrific crime, and you want to be able to have some kind of vindication, you know. Right. But I think that you know, really, what what is most helpful, um, you know, in maybe prevention of these is is not mental health, ironically, because interesting, a lot of these individuals that commit mass shootings do not go to psychiatrists. Or they don't <laughs> tell them the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they don't. I mean, James Holmes was a was an it was an aberration that he wound up there and he wound up seeing Dr. Fenton for a completely different reason. It wasn't because he had thoughts of killing people. So, you know, mental health is great for the ripple effect for the right. people in the communities, right? That's but it's not going to stop. In most of these cases, it's not going to stop a, a shooter. And so, I think what, what really this book says is it's it's pretty impossible to spot a killer, but there are some common denominators. Mm. They're, they're mostly young men yep. <laughs> between ages of 18 and 24. Yeah. And you know, and if we had more laws like red flag laws and you know, things where people felt like they could identify a problem without a repercussion. And I think that's the biggest issue, you know. Yeah. Is that people are afraid to come forward and say, hey, I think this person's really troubled. They're posting things on social media or they're in my English class and they're sending me very disturbing essays, you know, and I think we should take a closer look. But the problem now is that a lot of those those individuals are afraid to come forward because they don't want to be wrong.
0: Yeah. You know? Isn't that a terrible ripple effect of like Yes? We don't want to get involved in other people's lives because and, and and cause if you're wrong, there's a different ripple effect, right? And so we just all wait and then like you said, we point the finger. But I think that I think this is a really important book because we all talk about how we need to try to understand something. Yeah. But this has the perspective of so many different people and what can we do and what can't we do? And maybe the change of the conversation, the change right. that needs to happen. Um instead of just Feel like America sometimes just talks in circles.
1: <laughs> like, yes, it's rhetoric, and we don't need rhetoric anymore. Right, We need right. To look clear-cut answers. Like, what can we actually do about yeah. this? And it's this not just people.
0: saving their lives of the twelve people or the seventy-two that got hurt, but his. Like, if you could help somebody not commit that, that is saving their life.
1: He's gonna die in jail, right? You know? well, yeah, is he, that. he himself is tortured by right. This, you know, right. so it's. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Um, you know I mean? Mass shootings are, are like epidemic, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're, it's, it's like, now is a way to solve people. And I know people are grasping at straws and they're having this, but I think it, you're right. It is a conversation. that needs to continue and it needs to expand and it needs to not be so, um, you know, forgive the pun, but shooting from the hip, you know, <laughs> like you don't want to just say this is, this is the, the catch all to right. solve because it's a very complicated issue. And, um, and I think, I mean, I really applaud Dr. Fenton for yeah. having the courage to come forward and say, this is what happened to me. This is my story. And I really hope that with this story, this telling, we can, we can continue the conversation.
0: Right. Right. I think it's a very, it's very important also for the American public or the, to understand What people know and what they don't know, like what do jurors know? Because we we tend to assume a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's terrible that she got death threats. What she's not responsible for another person's motives or or actions, you know. I but like you said, we just we're trying to find a reason and. Right, and being able to tell the story—that's wonderful—that the judge allowed her to do that because that—I wonder how many stories are under gag orders and uh, they can't say anything and they just have to live with in
1: silence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think many more than we we care to to really pay attention to. And I think, I mean, I also applaud the judge in this case for
2: right. allowing it
1: to be publicized. I mean, he he also was part of that conversation and changing it and saying, "Look, we have a chance here." Yeah. Was somebody who actually survived this mass shooting to delve into his brain, into his psyche and find out, was he an American psycho or was there something else yeah. going on? And, you know, and here's Dr. Fenton, who's in a listening profession, you know, right. and I mean, and here she is confronted with what she actually describes as the presence of evil. Mm. And so it's so conflicting for her as somebody who has sworn to do no harm you know, she's there to help people. She's there to really dig deep to find out what's going on. And she really did go above and beyond to try to get help for him. I mean, she violated HIPAA to to find out, you know, was this thing that was happening to him something that, you know, was recent or, you know, was it provoked by something? Was he always this way? You know, she reached out to his mother. I mean, these are things that psychiatrists don't do you know right but she saw you know, um, yeah <clears throat> she saw me and and just went above and beyond and was completely crucified for it. so yeah. yeah i'm
0: so glad that she gets to tell her story because um it always like not to make it completely different but like i i i am very um I guess, perturbed by the fact of gag orders. I have a friend in Canada that can't do it. Um, The royal family, it really perturbs me that they can't
2: say anything,
0: because you have a story, you have your side, and you should be allowed to defend yourself, and so I'm glad that that she found you and that you, you could write the story together about Aurora and about her side. And then like the other sides as well. And hopefully others will write their story that, I mean, it would be fascinating to hear the judge or the jurors, you know, um, about this case, but, but now that you have this out, you said it took a while to sort of get, get through this. Like it, it's impacting you still. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it is your last book or do you think never say never? <laughs>
1: No, it's not my last book. Um, I, I really believe that you know a story that is not shared is not heard, right? Okay, yeah. so, and stories are really for other people because mm-hmm. they they can change lives. And so I think it's that mission and that um, thing that propels me forward. And so yeah. I, not only do I I love the process of writing, but I do think that the the more um, provocative the subject. Um, you know, something that I really believe in that I think is going to get to lend a voice to something is, is what propels me to continue writing. So I don't think that I will ever stop writing because it's really, truly a passion. I think it's my heart center, Yeah. but I I really do try to take gaps between them. You know, and recover. I recover. I mean, I, you know, my children used to be my comic relief, you know, they were (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were such bright spots. I mean, they still are very bright spots in my life, but um, but you know they're grown, and so now I have to find other bright spots. You need TikTok, <laughs> yeah, right. I know. So you know, nature things that, that are just the complete opposite of this dark world, right, that, right, right. You know, populated, so
0: yeah, that's yeah. a good point, though, for any writer who is going to do write true crime or even fiction crime, like mental health for, for us will, will work. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. What is it? Uh, mindfulness. mindfulness. Yes. Yes. yes.
0: So where can people find, uh, you mentioned that you have, uh, like a true crime. Do you have a, a course or, or just, um, you have a writing workshop?
1: Yeah, it's a writing workshop. It's on my website, Carrie and, uh, it's a nine week course. You can take it at your own pace but it's chock full of information on basically how I did this, right. my background of it, um, and there's a lot of really great tips in there. Sort of goes through the rewards and pitfalls of writing true crime, and you know, because I, I mean, I wish that I had had a mentor, yeah, to kind of teach me these things. So I feel like it's something that I also want to share with other people. Absolutely, if they want to embark on this.
0: And if you're, if they're not a lawyer, do you think that that gave you an advantage? Like if they. If you're
1: going to write true crime, do you kind of need to know a lawyer? (laughs) You know what? You do absolutely do not have to be a lawyer. I don't even think you have to be a journalist. I think you have to be curious,
0: curious, and you
1: know, and and be and kind of go for the jugular because writing true crime is very is like a hybrid. You know, you're you're getting into the heads of your characters who are real people. Right. You know, so you have to really be good at interviewing. And talking to them and not be afraid to approach them, right? Uh, okay, yeah, but you definitely, I mean, you can have a lawyer in your back pocket, and that's always yeah. helpful. But and have your course cool. that will let them, let. yeah, <laughs> I talk about that in my course. <laughs> so. And then, where can they find Aurora? Aurora is uh on Amazon, it's in every major bookstore. Um, so you can Google my name and you'll, you'll see all the books that come up okay. under my name. Well, we
0: will have those links in the show notes, and um, you can find. Carrie on pretty much every social media, and then carriejobin.com will have in the show notes below that you guys can click on. Thank you so much, Carrie. This was fascinating. Uh, true crime is like something I didn't know much about, but it sounds uh-huh. like a lot of work, but interesting work.
2: Uh,
1: thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Hey, you're still listening. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group.